Hello, listeners. This is Pursuing Justice, and I am Harriet Hendel. I want to welcome my listeners today as we continue speaking with staff members of the Quattrone Center for the Fair Administration of Justice, which is based in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Dr. Paul Heaton is our final guest today. He is academic director of the center, having come from his position as the director of the RAND Institute for Civil Justice, a national innovator in the empirical study of the legal system. He was also a senior economist at the RAND Corporation and a professor at Pardee RAND Graduate School. He's a recipient of a number of awards, including a RAND Gold Medal. He received his MA and PhD from the University of Chicago. It's so good to have you add your perspective to our ongoing discussion with your colleagues at the Quattrone Center. Thanks for being with me today, Paul. Thanks for having me, Harriet. You're welcome. So let's begin by explaining your role at the center. I'm the academic director of the center, so I co-direct it with uh, John Hallway, one of your other guests. And it's interesting, we intentionally try and make the center a multidisciplinary enterprise. Uh, John has a legal background. I actually received my graduate training in economics. So I do a lot of crunching numbers and data to try and measure the effects of different policies in the criminal justice system. And so uh, one of the things that I do as the academic director is help to think about and design research studies that would try and measure and help us understand uh, kind of at an aggregate macro level what's going on in the criminal justice system. And as we implement various types of reforms, if we change rules governing uh, what a crime is or how we de detain people pretrial or whether or not prosecutors have liability for various uh, types of activities, what the downstream effects of those types of changes are on the functioning of the system as a whole. All right. And what drew you to come to the Quattrone Center? I think one of the things that was intriguing to me about the center, and I joined it a few years after it started, was the opportunity to work on a really important issue. Uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful colleagues and a great experience at RAND, uh, but I was focused there primarily on civil justice research. And of course, the civil justice system is largely about money, right? If somebody gets injured, you know, who do we compensate and how much? And while those can be very important issues, of course, when we switch over and look at criminal justice, it's really a question of, are we going to use the power of the state, which you know should represent all of us, to take away people's liberty or potentially even their lives. And of course, the stakes in those sort of decisions are very high. We want to be absolutely certain that we've done the best that we can to make those decisions appropriately and not to impose punishment on people who actually are innocent. And of course, as your uh, you know podcast highlights, unfortunately, a lot of times 
we make mistakes. There are many opportunities for improvement. Uh, there are errors in terms of wrongful convictions, other types of errors. And being at the center, it's a place where we have an opportunity to really think deeply about what are the system factors that create those errors, uh, do research and study and understand how we can make improvements, improvements and then take those out into the field to policymakers and practitioners. So I was just really drawn to the opportunity to be able to work on such important uh, issues that affect people's uh, everyday lives in profound ways. All right. So today we're going to focus on two main topics that we talked about before we uh, decided to, you know, uh, have you on as a guest. I know you want to talk about qualified immunity and absolute immunity, wherein prosecutors and police are concerned. But first, you wanted to talk a little bit about a systems approach to reducing criminal justice errors. Can you explain what a systems approach consists of? Well, our criminal justice system, it consists of a lot of interlocking parts. You know, we make decisions, police are out on the streets and they make decisions about which crimes to investigate and who to arrest. Uh, then after people are arrested, they go through a pretrial system and they're prosecuted. And for those who are convicted, then they go into a prison system where they there may or may not be efforts to rehabilitate them. And at some point, most of them are going to reenter society and Potentially, the cycle continues and maybe people uh, move outside of the system. But, you know, there's these kind of large interlocking pieces with a number of different actors. We have defense attorneys, judges, prosecutors, police, each with their own sets of incentives, uh, trying, to, trying to do their jobs and make judgments. And so when we talk about the systems approach, it's really about trying to measure and understand as we make uh, you know, changes or we alter what happens in one uh, part of this kind of long chain, what might the implications be uh, on outcomes we care about, like wrongful convictions uh, in other parts of the system? So if the police, you know, police in different ways, how could that affect errors or wrongful convictions? What if we change how we staff or train public defenders, what implications could that be? And there's different ways of approaching that question, right? We can certainly do it. And, uh, you know, others have probably talked about event reviews. And, you know, those are efforts to look at kind of particular individual cases and do a deep dive in order to be able to think about what we can learn about how the larger systems function based on these case studies. Uh, there's another approach that I use, which involves collecting statistical and other data that covers really large swaths of the system. So perhaps, for example, looking at records that cover hundreds of thousands of criminal cases in some jurisdictions and trying to understand and measure patterns and think about cause and effect and what we can learn from these kind of large aggregated data systems. Okay. Um, how do you apply a systems approach? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it depends some on the question, but maybe one way I could answer that is by running through one particular example of some research that we've done uh, in the pretrial space, thinking about 
uh, how that pre-trial process interacts with other parts. You know, when we think about wrongful conviction, it's typical, I think, to focus in on the high-profile cases, people who get sent to death row, people who are accused of very serious crimes who turn out to be innocent and spend many years in prison. And obviously, those are tragic situations and ones that we need to address. But if you think about the kind of system as a whole and the sort of incentives that are embedded, it may actually be that the largest source of wrongful convictions isn't on these high-profile cases with serious felonies that, you know, get a, a fair bit of investigation and a lot of appeal, but it could actually be, uh, you know, smaller cases where, you know, our system as it currently exists kind of runs through the, the cases very quickly. There are strong incentives potentially for people to plead guilty to crimes they haven't uh, committed. And thinking about the different incentives, one of the things that occurred to us uh, is that, you know, one area where that might be rife for wrongful convictions is a situation where someone is accused of some relatively minor offense, say a minor misdemeanor. Uh, let's imagine that they're arrested for that. Uh, they're taken before a bail magistrate and the magistrate sets some small amount of bail because it's a pretty small minor offense. Let's say it's a $500 bail for a disorderly conduct. And then what happens is the person is too poor to afford their bail. So they get put in pretrial detention. They get sent to the local jail to wait for their case to be resolved. Now, if you think about what are the incentives of the prosecutor, they're going to get the file to look at this. Hey, this is a minor case. You know, let's imagine I'm the person who's there in jail. Right? Paul has, you know, already been locked up for a few days. Why don't we just offer if he pleads out, you know, we'll release him. He can be home today. Defense attorney. Here's that offer. That sounds pretty good. He takes it to me and says, hey, you know what? The uh, DA has offered to let you plea out to this. You can be you know, home later today. Oh, but wait a second. I didn't actually do it. They've got the wrong guy. <laughs> well, you know, what are my incentives there, right? If I, if I confess to doing something I didn't do, I get released. If I want to assert my innocence, then in fact, I'm going to have to stay in jail until my case comes up, maybe a week, maybe a few weeks. It actually increases my punishment, potentially. So there's some incentives there that, if you think about it, suggest that maybe these small-level cases could be a big, where there's pretrial detention imposed, could be a big source of wrongful conviction. So uh, we actually conducted a large-scale empirical study where we tried to actually measure uh, whether that happens and what the consequences of detention uh, might be. Oh, I see. Okay. And can you give us an idea of um, what you learned, uh, you know, from this particular um, investigation into bail and pretrial detention? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, that's a study in Harris County, Texas, uh, which is where Houston is located, third largest county in the United States. So it's a big place where lots of people run through the criminal justice system, and there's lots of people who are accused of these small crimes, tens of thousands of misdemeanor defendants uh, each year. And we were actually able to get data covering hundreds of thousands of individual cases 
uh, and we did a statistical analysis where we compared what happens in cases where you have otherwise similarly situated defendants, but some defendants get uh, uh, high bail set and they get detained and other people are able to be released pretrial. And we used some methods that economists and stat statisticians use to try and not just measure kind of the correlation between being detained and what happens to you in your case, but to actually really, uh, as one would do in a clinical trial, try and measure the causal effect of being detained. And some of the results were pretty striking. We showed, for example, that if you were to take otherwise uh, similar defendants uh, and uh, detain some of them, those who were detained would go on uh, to, to plead guilty at a weight about 25% higher. They're much more likely to get sentenced to jail, about 43% more likely to receive jail sentences, and they receive much longer sentences. So the, detent, the choice to detain people itself affects who gets found guilty. It affects their sentences. Even worse off, we were able to follow these same defendants into the future, six months later, 12 months later, 18 months, several years, and we could look and see did they actually show up again? Did they get rearrested? Uh, and the answer was detaining people actually increases people's likelihood of coming into the system again and getting rearrested. So for those who you know, thought they were potentially uh, preserving public safety by keeping some people who might be a flight risk or who might not uh, uh, commit additional crimes if released off the streets, it turned out actually this policy of detaining people in these small cases uh, actually uh, ultimately harm public safety and increase crime. So, you know, uh, detention turned out in this empirical study to not look very promising, right? It was increasing wrongful convictions. It was increasing the weight at which people were convicted, and it was actually harming public safety, in mm. part due to some litigation that was launched in the county and several other jurisdictions. Harris County actually enacted some very substantial reforms uh, that substantially reduced pretrial detention. Uh, and so we think that that's going to be very helpful in terms of reducing wrongful convictions, helping to preserve public safety. And we're actually in the process now of collecting new data, measuring the effect of those reforms that they implemented in part in response to the research that we've done to try and understand did it have the anticipated uh, beneficial effects. Very, so very interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just saying how interesting it is that that's the outcome uh, that maybe you didn't uh, realize was was going to be the outcome after all. So uh, that that's fascinating. Um, I I want very much to get to the other topic that you said you'd like to talk about. And that was uh, the qualified immunity and absolute immunity. Uh, so uh, please tell us um, your thoughts about that. Thanks. Since I'm trained as an economist, one thing that economists think a lot about is what sort of incentives do people have? And, you know, we kind of model behavior as people trying to optimize based on uh, incentives that they have, the potential consequences of their choices. And we apply that, you know, just as I described with pretrial detention, thinking about a defendant who has to face a choice about, you know, pleading guilty or not, 
we can also apply that to judges and prosecutors. And of course, one of the things that arises when you think about prosecutors is, of course, you know, we think that most prosecutors are really sincere in trying to make sure they get uh, the right person in the right way. But in any profession, you know, for prosecutors as in any other profession, there also may be people who are going to push the light lines in terms of uh, what's constitutional or what's allowed. And unfortunately, in the courts, there have been a number of doctrines uh, which tend to make it very hard to hold bad prosecutors accountable when they engage in the sort of behaviors that could produce wrongful conviction. And here I'm talking about things that can be very egregious. For example, when you know a witness is lying, allowing them to nonetheless testify on the stand and present that evidence to a jury. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you've arrested someone, charged them with a crime, someone else comes in and says, oh, no, it was actually me. I was the one who committed the crime. You just kind of ignore that and go ahead with the prosecution of the original uh, culprit, which sadly we see in some circumstances. Now, you might say, well, gee, why? How, how can prosecutors get away with this? You know, shouldn't it be that if you engage in this sort of misconduct, there'll be some sort of discipline? And, you know, if someone is wrongfully convicted, certainly, you know, they ought to, shouldn't they be able to sue prosecutors and, you know, uh, you know kind of you know, force them to pay and provide compensation for the harms that they cause from the wrongful convictions? And unfortunately, the answer is largely no. Uh, and, you know, I, I think a lot of us have heard in the kind of larger public discussion in policing about uh, something called qualified immunity. And so this is a judicial doctrine that says that we can't sue police for constitutional violations uh, unless some very stringent criteria have been met. And so that's why you see incidents like the killing of George Floyd. Right. Or other police killings where police may not actually face any sort of uh, tort liability as a result of those because of the doctrine of qualified immunity. Well, you know, people have, you know, criticized that doctrine in the context of police. Well, for prosecutors, it's even worse. It's not just qualified immunity, which even though there is stringent criteria, you can in some circumstances do. For prosecutors, they enjoy something called absolute immunity, which means you can't sue them at all. There's no, you know, there are no stringent criteria. We just say, hey, you know what, prosecutors, we ought to think of them kind of like judges. And in the same way you couldn't sue a judge for what they do on the bench, we're just going to say you can't sue prosecutors uh, for anything they do wrong, even if it's intentional, even if it's egregious, even if it costs someone, you know, 20, 30 years of their life due to a wrongful conviction. So that's a serious concern. And one of the things that we've been thinking about is how you could you know, change those incentives by, in a fair and balanced way, providing opportunities uh, for people to be able to recover damages in situations where prosecutors intentionally engage in various forms of misconduct. And and do you see that changing in the future? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm hopeful, right? I mean, I, I would say prosecutors, they tend, like all of us, to be kind of defensive about the potential for misconduct and, hey, it doesn't happen, right? And, 
you know, those are rare cases and we don't need special rules. I will say that, you know, one of the things that we try and do at the Quattrone Center is learn from other industries. And I think we've seen in certain other domains uh, situations where allowing for various types of liability can be a helpful part of the solution in terms of improving the entire system and reducing errors over time. Uh, you know, the prosecutors tend to be fairly politically powerful. I do think one of the thing that, things that gives me hope is awareness due to, you know, work like yours with the podcast and the work of others. I think there's much greater awareness around the problems of wrongful conviction. Uh, and so that makes me think that there may be more public desire to make improvements in the incentive structures that we have in our system. We've also done some kind of interesting survey work that suggests with respect to prosecutorial accountability and the specific question of, hey, if a prosecutor intentionally engages in misconduct, should someone be able to sue them and recover damages? It turns out that when you ask the public about that, most people say, yeah. And it's mm -hmm. not actually a very ideological thing. Both very conservative Republicans say, hey, yeah, we think there should be some accountability. Very progressive people on the list, people of all ages, different regions of the country. So this might actually be an issue that can transcend some of the partisan divisions that we're seeing and that could garner widespread public support. Now, I think there's a lot more to do. And, you know, uh, you know kind of changing the rules regarding immunity isn't some sort of a silver bullet. I think there's lots of other things that we could do better training. I think bar discipline, I think getting different types of people to become prosecutors. Uh, you know, I think there's, you know, I think there's gonna have to be a range of solutions to deal with uh, misconduct. Uh, but, you know, I guess I'm hopeful that I think that there's opportunities that exist today in the current climate that would have been, you know, difficult or impossible 10 or 20 years ago. Well, it's good to hear that you're hopeful because it's something that is so deeply, deeply disturbing to read about cases where someone goes to prison for as long as 43 years, a case in Florida. Uh, I actually interviewed the man. And and there's nothing nothing that can be done about that kind of misconduct uh, coming from the prosecution prosecution. So I'm glad you're optimistic, and uh, maybe the Quattrone Center will have a uh, you know a say in what happens up ahead. I hope so. I really do. Well, I thank you so very very much, uh, Paul, for being part of our series on the Quattrone Center. I didn't know that the center existed, and I'm so glad that I do now. And I hope uh, our listeners have learned a great deal from all the uh, the participating staff uh, that was part of the uh, that were part of the podcast uh, this these last several weeks. So thank you for your time and your expertise, and I do appreciate your being with me today. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Harriet. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, listeners. Please tune in next time for Pursuing Justice.